Welcome everybody to the Diecast Movie Podcast. For this episode, we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, dad. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. And this time I'm joined by Jeannie Russell, who most of you remember from Dennis the Menace. She played Margaret, but she's also in a lot of other TV shows and movies. And she's done a lot of other things in her life that we're going to learn about. How are you doing today, Dr. Russell? Just call me Jeannie, please. I'm fine. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. You mentioned that um, just before you were going to interview me, you watched one of the more obscure things that I did. And um, that is, I had not seen that for decades and decades and decades. And some collector at a convention had it on tape. And I almost didn't recognize myself at first. And it's one of the few times you're going to still see me on screen without my Margaret drag on, as I called it, you know. And that, that was what I really looked like, um, obviously. Margaret, you know, they had just spent hours getting that look. But um, the deputy was a lot of fun to shoot. I uh, love horses. And um, half the fun of a, doing a Western is to go to Western costume. And... Um, they outfit you, you know, petticoats, socks, boots, you know, pinafores, the whole thing. And um, it was a huge, you know, um, three-level, four-level building. And uh, we would all go there, and when we'd show up on set, there would be our clothes. And um, it, it tickled me so much in um, Tarantino's film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that little girl that had used the child actress in it. I went, oh my God, that looks like my wardrobe. That could be me. And Allison Arngrim said the same thing. She was, they even had me in it. I go, look, at, they had me. And I showed her a picture from that, that show. So, um, and Alan Case, I had such a crush on him. Um, little girl crush. And he, um, with everyone's permission, of course, he let them put, he gave me a ride on his horse, okay? They lifted me up and we rode around the set, you know, and um, oh, it was, I was like floating on air. And shortly after that, uh, he did an appearance on Johnny Carson's show. I think it was Johnny back in those days. I can't remember. I was asleep and my mother woke me up to see him. And he sang, I deemed Jeannie with the light brown hair, you know, which absolutely, <laughs> oh God, never saw him again in my life. But he was a nice guy, but that was fun. So yeah, that was one of the few things that you can find on me that um, where I look like myself, more or less. Yeah. And for those wondering, the episode is on the deputies, the Johnny Shank story. And it's season one, right. I think season one, episode eight, and it's on stars. So if you have stars, you can watch it. It's 25 minutes. It's, um, it's, it's back to the old days of when Westerns were all over the place. And, uh, and Henry Fonda is in it, but not in scenes that you're in. Cause he's like in the beginning. No, right. Yeah. He just, I guess, did wraparounds, you know, a little in the beginning, a little after that. But, um, what was I going to say? Oh, I was surprised when I saw that. The, the jazz score, the, the music, was jazz, well, guitar mainly, yeah, yeah. you know? But it was jazz, and I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, it, it, well, it, you know, it, it, I agree with you, because for a Western playing, it was, like, it, was, it was the jazz score. I'm trying to think of the TV show. 
that really was known for the jazz score. Oh, dang it. It's going to drive me nuts. Peter Gunn. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it was like Peter Gunnish, you know, with the, the music in a Western. It was just like. Eh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I guess the only time I ever saw that combination. You know, but um, anyway, so that was fun. And I got to do a Death Valley Days with Dorothy Malone, which was a lot of fun. That episode was called The Watch. And, um, you know, it was a, a series called Assignment Underwater. Mm-hmm. It, um, the star was married to um, Della and Perry Mason. <laughs> and uh, Bill, Bill, Bill's last name, I'm forgetting Williams. that. Bill, Bill Williams. Yeah, Bill Williams. right, right. And so I did an episode of that. And I remember because I was seasick. Oh my God, the boat was just, you know, rocking. But anyway, so, um, and then of course the birds, you know, with Alfred Hitchcock, that was a, a really big deal for a kid back in those days to work with Hitchcock, you know. What was it like working for Hitchcock? I mean, how did he treat you? Because, you know, I, I heard rumors how he treats adult actors, but I'm curious how he treated the children. It was interesting because by that time I was two years into Dennis the Menace. And, you know, once you do principal work, post-storing work, you don't go back and do extra stuff. So I, I was given a one-on-one interview with Alfred Hitchcock. So I was in the office with the man, okay? And there he was sitting behind his desk and he had storyboard all over the walls, kids with their eyes gouged out. And, you know, I went in there to sell myself, which is what kids do, and put my picture book down, and I think maybe he just sort of slipped through it, you know, in a bored way. And I, I looked around the room and I went, oh, wow, oh, I love horror. It's my absolute favorite type of, of show. And, and I'm in a comedy series, and I've never done horror, and, oh, I'd love to do this. And he's just kind of, you know looking at me, not saying too much. <laughs> I thought, so I, I'm babbling a little bit longer, and then I guess he pressed the button to indicate the, yeah, the interview was over. And I got up and left, and then the agent called that night and said, Jeannie, got the job. You're going to fly to, to Bodega Bay next week, and you'll get a script when you're up there. So we got up there, and um, the only script that was waiting for us in the room was that song, okay, that the kids were singing. And it's fascinating. I, I dug it out recently. I hadn't laid eyes on it. My mother kept everything. And there were about 10 pages of, it was all on the page. Every every accent that the head were made, you know, every drag of the cigarette, every turn of her head. And our song was interspersed. He had this whole thing planned out. Okay, and um, it, it's just so interesting to see those pages. And what we did is we sang that song. We just gathered in the schoolroom, and they dropped the boom, and we we sang it. And only a kid could learn it that fast. But nonsense, nonsense lyrics, you know. And that's the only music in the film. The only music. Okay. So um, on set, he acted like he'd never seen me before in his life. And um, I wouldn't say rude, but I would say just, I didn't exist. Like, you go up to him, good morning, Mr. Hitchcock. And he looks straight ahead. And 
his AD or something would say hi, you know, good morning. And he, he rode the big camera truck and uh, the AD was calling the action, you know, from the trucks by his side. And um, that was really the only interaction. And, and it took us about a week to get both, you know, between in the schoolhouse and then running one way and running the other way to get all the shots he needed. And he couldn't get close enough. But I think he knew this because right there in the script, it describes treadmill work on the lot. And I was to be like girl number two on the treadmill. And when we got back to town, you know, for the close shots, because the welfare worker kept stopping him and saying, you're too close to those kids because we were falling down the hill. And so they backed off and they stopped and they went and they bought pink tights for all the girls. And, um, so she stopped production because of that. But he always knew he was going to have to do treadmill work. Well, when he called, when they called to to do the treadmill work at the studio, I had to go do Dennis the Menace. That happened to me twice with two jobs. One was Mr. Ed. I was supposed to, you know, do a Mr. Ed. And that was the one day Dennis the Menace wanted me of the week. And so I couldn't go back and do the treadmill work. So they slapped another my wardrobe on another kid. I had a very distinctive sweater on. It was green and gold check. And I was wearing a very drab brown dress. And they put her in my wardrobe. And she got the, the close-ups I was supposed to have. So, you know, so that whole sequence was sort of cut and paste. He, he was not unkind. It was all very professional. And, and everyone I know there had a blast, you know. You know, fun thing to do. The first time down the hill, uh, they had me rigged with a, a mechanical bird. First three ran without any. And then for the reverse shot, where it shows us running towards the water, they had a mechanical bird rigged on me, and I'd flick a switch, and it would, you know, it would do like that. And the first time down the hill, it did rob blood. And the prop man had to readjust it and put something on the beak to make it softer. So that's the bird story. <laughs> well, the thing is, you always wonder about, like, the birds, and I always find it interesting because sometimes you talk to people in the movies that are in the main roles or directors, and they, they, mm-hmm. they have a different perspective. And then you have people that are coming in, like yourself, for this particular show or movie, you know, where you're doing a couple of days and you're in and out, and you come in mm-hmm. with a different perspective of the whole thing. And that's what I think is fascinating is when you hear – these different avert in tales. It's, it's, it's like I've talked to other people and somebody, you can have five people that have to all worked in the same thing and have five different versions of that work, but they're all true because they'll come from five different perspectives. And I think that's, that's right. That, that is right. And um, what he did was he hired um, a sprinkling of Hollywood kids to sort of, you know, be like the leaders, you know, of the action and there was a lot of talk when we got there, and my mother saw the script. First call she made was the agent. She said, are you kidding me? They're, she's being used as an extra. And um, this, a couple of other mothers were up in arms about that. But then the consensus was, well, we're there, and it's an Alfred Hitchcock film, so let's just go for it, make the best of it. And, yeah, and then we got what we would have gotten scale for principal work. So um, that 
but there, there was controversy about, you know, how small our role was. But basically, Veronica said it in an interview, and it's, she summed it up brilliantly. He shot the film twice. He did, uh, you know, all this, this, this work in the Vega Bay. And it ran down that hill. It was for real. It was a gravelly road. Kids would fall. They'd snowball. They'd run into each other. And a lot of times, Suzanne Fouchette, who was just, oh, my God, so sweet. She'd be the first one to reach a, a fallen kid and dust him, dust him off and check if he was bleeding. And um, there were a couple of crew members running out, out of camera range on hippies, on hippies' side, pacing her. And as soon as we call cut, they'd run in and grab an elbow, you know, and sort of be down, you know, where Suzanne was like trundling down the hill with the rest of us. So basically, yeah, those are my memories. But he shot the film twice. And so that sequence, as well as like the, the end when they're leaving the house, the property, and it's full of birds, basically shot twice, you know, once at a house in Bodega Bay and once on a set. And he just kind of overlaid things. That that's what what the schoolhouse sequence was too. That's fascinating. And one thing we kind of jumped right into your work and stuff like that because because we were talking prior to we start to hit record button. What led you to get into acting? Was it was it all from your mom's side, or was it something you were interested in? Your mom. It was my parents. It was my parents. Um, they were both raised in the South, and they met at LSU. They were in the opera department. My dad was a tenor, and my mother was a, um, a pianist. She was on faculty there. And they came to California to further his career. And we moved to Hollywood on a street called Fernwood. And I don't know if that'll ring a bell, but do you remember Fernwood, USA, from Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman? It was, it was a television, a Norman Lear television series. And they had a fictitious talk show called Fernwood USA. And Fernwood was the street that backed the studios. And they did not have parking lots in those days. So people parked all over the place in the local neighborhoods. And someone spotted my brother. He was two years younger than me. Cute kid with just big soulful eyes. And they knocked on the door, literally, and said, we need a, a child on the Lassie set right now to do a pickup shot. We don't want to pull, pull John Provost out of his tutoring. Um, had to be there at least 20 minutes in the seat or it wouldn't count, you know. And you needed three hours of education. So they knocked on the right door. And um, my mother and grandmother went over to the Lassie set and Brian did the pickup shot. And, and then we hit it off with the provost. And... They would come to our apartment for lunch breaks. They lived in Pomona. John was never seeing sunshine. So uh, we were sort of a buffer for them. And, and um, my mother would coach John if he had to sing. But literally, that's how it happened. There was a knock on the door, but they knocked on the right door because my childhood was vaudevillian like the film Gypsy. Okay, What we did at home was my grandmother would stretch my feet for ballet. She'd have me hang on to the wall and stretch my leg up. Then my mother was at the piano and they were teaching us phonetic opera, you know, and teaching us numbers like there's no, there's like show, there's, you know, they were making little performers out of us. And 
one of my dad's friends was Seb Woolley, who did the Purple People Leader. And um, Seb was at the house a lot, and my mother was coaching him. So we were vaudeville all the way. We were ready, you know. And that's how we got in. And then Brian was on the interview for Dennis the Menace. And I had, um, once we got, we had set time on Lassie. My dad was singing. He was a ringer in a church with an agent's wife, Althea Shaw. And she said, well, let's pick your kids. We have a children's department. Let's come in and see what happens. And they were Jerry Mathers' first agent. And we started going on interviews. And with my red hair, I wasn't getting anything. They were casting the Mimi Gibsons, the beautiful little blondes with the big soulful eyes, you know. And, and um, my brother went on the, the interview for Dennis. And my mother had the smarts to always insert one of my pictures in his book. My book, I mean, when you go in there, you know, you're going to sell yourself. There's a book of your pictures that they flipped through. And so they saw my picture, they were looking at my picture and they said, well, we're afraid you're too young to do Dennis the Menace. She said, well, my sister's older. And so they looked at my picture and they agreed to see me and that started the interview process for Dennis the Menace. And I, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> I think my other on-camera job before that was I did a very um, prolific milk and magnesia commercial. Made a lot of money on that in, back in the day. And... Um, Again, I was in pigtails, red hair, you know. So I was kind of typecast that way. Well, in some ways it's good to be typecast. In some ways it's bad. It's good if you're getting work from it. It's bad if you're not getting work from it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I did an industrial for DuPont with a couple of the um, Cochran brothers. wasn't with Kevin Cochran, the Disney star, was two of his brothers. And again, I was playing the brat, and I was in pigtails. And someone on the set said, you remind me of that kid on Dennis the Menace. I said, well, it's me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's why, what, you know, I remind you of it because it's me. And, <laughs> yeah. so, and they could not send me out for publicity uh, they, unless they did my hair. We tried it once and it fell flat. No one knew who the hell I was. We had a picture of me standing with John Provost and Tony Dow and, and uh, Shelley Fabre and Paul Peterson on the steps of the courthouse in Beverly Hills, and I'm just me. And I was like, I, I could be anyone. You know, so they'd send me out, they'd call me, and I'd do my curls, and they'd give me glasses, and I'd have to go out in that drag, you know. And I was beginning to feel ugly, you know, but... Um, Anyway, so that was that, and then we all got too big to do the show. Um, they were talking about recasting it, with, you know, with a younger crop of kids, and um, but that that was not going to fly. So they just pulled the plug um, after four seasons. Now, on Dennis the Menace, you worked with a lot of people that a lot of people are going to know, and I'm, I'm, we'll start off with Dennis himself, Jane North, who I know from other stuff had a totally different experience than any other child actor did because his, his was a very poor environment um, from his family side. But I mean, besides that, what was it like working with him when you were on six? I know you didn't get to do much with him outside of the set for various reasons. Well, he was, um, I'd see him outside of the set on personal appearances. Like if one of us had a birth, like if John Provost had a birthday party, 
it was a big party. We were all there, you know, and cameras and everything. So I would see him in that capacity when we weren't working. He was very sensitive. That's what I remember the most. When we were doing an exterior out at the ranch in Burbank, the, the birds were making too much noise. So before the scene, the AD shot blanks up in the air. And Jay ran off the set and wouldn't come out because he thought they were killing the birds, you know, and they had to wait till they could calm him down and assure him that that was not happening. And if he would blow a take, it was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry, Jenny. I'm so sorry. He'd apologize to everyone around him. But yeah, you know, it's okay. And apparently this was being driven by his aunt, Marie, who he was living with. His, um, his uncle and aunt lived two houses away from his mom, and she was a single mother, so he stayed with them, and they were the ones on the set all the time. And Ron Howard did our show the first season before he was Opie, and not many people know that. And um, we all, you know, would, we tried to go to lunch together. Ron and I did frequently, and Jay couldn't come. He had to eat lunch all alone in his dressing room because he was the star. His aunt said he needed to conserve his energy. So, yeah, it was things like that. He, he had a big burden. He was in just about every scene, you know, and um, it was really not slack, you know, um, for him. So that was unfortunate. And then, you know, he, he got typecast coming off of Dennis the Menace. It's very hard to transition in those days. Because they would get, well, Cynthia Pepper was one of them. She was playing, I think, Stan Livingston's girlfriend in high school. When I mean, she's, there's a big age span. You know, they'd get, you know, a, a cute woman who looked relatively young and have her play, you know, the 16 or 17 year old girlfriend. So they wouldn't have another um, minor on the set. So it was very difficult to bridge it. You know, there wasn't a lot of material and sympathy for someone who had grown up in the business around the adults, 24-7 going on interviews. Because trust me, if you weren't working, you were looking for your next job. Even when you come home, there'd be, you know, you'd have to practice and be coached and songs and things like that. And, like, there was a scene, there was a, episode, and this is segueing to my involvement, my consideration, there was an episode that called for Margaret to do the hula in Dennis the Menace. I don't know if you saw that episode or not, but um, it so happened, my father was a singer, and he he was had been singing a show in Hawaii, and he thought, saw a hula skirt out, and he oh, Gee, can probably use one of these. So he brought me a hula outfit home, you know, way before this was even on the horizon. And my mother had taken lessons in Alabama from Princess Leilani and knew a hula, okay? And so we showed up on the set that day, not only with me and, you know, having a full costume, but I had a choreographed hula. And it, the director took me aside before lunch, and he said, okay, we're going to do your sequence, your dance sequence after lunch. Um, let's talk about what you're going to do. And I blew him away. I, I did this whole choreographed tour, you know, where I, you know, looked at him, and he, 
he he gave me the camera that he he put much more of it in the in the cut than I probably would have if not he was blown away cracked him up and he added one piece of business where I knocked my glasses off so um we um my whole family was just immersed in this but so now I'm getting bigger and they're having to strap me down okay um because I'm beginning to look like an adolescent and the show ends and um when you you know when you're so involved in the business, a lot of time you have you're growing up out of sync with with normal teenage normal kids and teenagers. So I did not have the emotional maturity that said experience. You know, I was a, you know very put that way, but I did not have the emotional maturity to tackle some of the older roles. I didn't understand them because I had I had not had that you know interaction that a normal kid would and um and also at that time just about every ingenue role called for nudity once we got past a certain time so there were lots of reasons that transition didn't happen for me but the business was unsympathetic in my experience i i called my script lady thinking well i'll be a script script supervisor you know oh, there are too many of us already so people are very kind to you all of a sudden it was like click you know and i even called screen actress extra skill and was thinking well i started as an extra so let me start my adult career as an extra no we got too many extras so it was just no 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 so now cut to decades later i hadn't seen jay in decades and I decided to become a chiropractor because if I couldn't be an actress, I didn't want to think like one. I grieved to the business, missed it, you know, and, and was a fish out of water in high school. So I decided to put myself through school. And my mother comes into play here because when I was 18 and very depressed, she called me in the, her bedroom and handed me a bank book and said, sweetheart, your career may be over. But look what the business did for you. And my single mother, my deadbeat dad, my single mother who worked all the time we were working, and my brother was going great guns, he's a whole other episode, had managed to save a significant sum of money for me just because it was the right thing to do. And it turns out she didn't have to because the Cuban law, as it existed at that time, was very lame. It only kicked in if a child had been taken to superior court. Um, like a series lead or something in a film. And the producers wanted to protect themselves. So I worked my entire career without a Coogan account, as did my brother until Walt Disney put him under contract. So she saved money for us. She didn't have to. But that that made a difference, that conversation, because I thought, well, okay. And Mimi Gibson didn't have that. You know, she talks about that in her book, her mother... I don't think saved a dime for the anyway, so um I looked at that and I went, Okay, yeah, all right. So now it's up to me. So that's when I decided to redirect my life and go to chiropractic school. And I did that, became a chiropractor, minding my own business, right? Totally <laughs> give it up often. And my office is near Universal Studios in Disney. And I would get um, patients who worked in the industry, you know, um, people, not very articulated this morning, from the publicity department. 
And one of my patients is saying to me, and if you, if you were a patient long enough, it would come up in conversation that I was raised in Hollywood, especially the studio people, you know, that was a hoot. And one of them said to me one day, he said, hey, there's a team coming from New York as a show called the Bobby Rivers Show, who was fantastic. He interviewed everyone in the world. It was an MTV show. And um, he was a fantastic interviewer. Because about this time, Dana Plato had robbed a laundry at gunpoint. Rusty Hamer had blown his brains out. Okay. Child actors from the prolific television era were starting to act out. And the press was beginning to notice. Why are former child actors going crazy? What could possibly be wrong? So Stu said, they've booked Jay North and he's scary. He is a hot, angry mess and they're almost afraid of him. And they said, how would you like to do the segment with him? You know, $500, we'll send the car. (laughs) Okay, I've been answering these for free all my life. So seeing him on the, the Bobby Rivers set was the first time we'd seen each other in decades. And it was like it was yesterday. We always um, played the opposite of what we were. He would stroke my hair and he told the in the casting process, he told the director he liked me. I was his pick to play Margaret. And um, But because the ending was so abrupt, for many of us, we went our separate ways and we didn't talk about it. We took it all very personally. So this is sort of how um, and, my, and Paul Peterson did the next segment of the Bobby Rupert show. So this got Paul and me in the same room. You know, I hit it off with the producer and I once said, oh, I haven't seen Paul in a long time. So that's really, you know, ground zero of of minor consideration, Paul's wife, Lana, was very instrumental in supporting this whole thing. She's a studio nurse, head of the studio nurses. And Jay was our first our first hands-on case. We managed to get her into a psychologist who could get into the psyche of this. And he was living as a recluse and, you know, was very angry. And um, that was the beginning of my new relationship with Jay and the beginning of minor consideration. And we went on now to do talk shows like Sally, Jesse, Raphael, Suzanne Summers, and um, Montel, and um, Geraldo. And when they'd ask, why? Why? You know, what's the problem? And I say, well, you know, working was great. I had no trouble when I didn't work. When I was working, I said, the problem was how abrupt the ending was. And and I said, it felt like my tribe had wandered off and left me sitting there in the desert. And I literally did not know how to behave. I spent lunch in high school standing in a corner of the girls' bathroom because I didn't know what to do. Okay. So now I'm doing doing, um, Suzanne Summers with Dana Plato. And Suzanne says to her, by now, Paul has got me, because I can articulate things. Paul was the blustery one who'd make everyone in the room mad. Okay, and then I was the one who could come in and deliver the message softly, you know, without getting everyone emotional. 
So Paul and I wrote a big bad bad guy thing. And, and so um, Suzanne Summers said to Dana, she was, why, Dana? Why did you do that? And Dana said, well, she said, I didn't know how to act when I wasn't on a film set. I didn't know how to behave. And Suzanne, it just kind of went, and she looked at me and she said, have you ever heard that before, Jeannie? I said, I hear it all the time. I can articulate it. So, so Paul had gotten me appointed the chair of the Young Performers Committee. Harry Gordon, who was also a former South actor, was the president of SAG. And Paul would do things like storm in a board meeting with press, you know, and the room would clear. Okay. So Barry said, You bring me a chair who can talk about this emotionally. So I was sitting home watching X Files. We <laughs> got a phone call from Paul going, Jeannie, we've got an opportunity. So, um, and I'm thinking, Ooh, it's to be around industry types. Yes, yes, I'll share the committee. So, that was a real life changer for me because I had gone from being totally away from the industry. And it's like the sleeping giant woke up and one of them escaped, you know, and got a paw and got me back. And so I was, um, we succeeded in getting, that's when, when Mimi Gibson and I hooked up again. She, her issue was Kuganwa. My issue was transition. Even dancers now had formed a transition department. When you're in your 20s, your career is over. What do you do? You can't access your your pension. So they already had a template, and they were housed upstairs. Mary McDonough from Walton's was also very into that. Mary and I took meetings with the brass up there. So we were basically doing the job of unpaid executives. And uh, we got a committee. We pitched to the AMPTP, the big guys, the big producers, a $100,000 conference, and we got the money. I'm like, oh, God, now what? You know, and we pulled this thing off, and it was the first. And the result of that conference we had was we had the political juice to change some laws. And uh, if you're not, I'll call the law, though. You know, I'll call Haralu and tell him you're using premiums on sets. You know, I'll call Haralu and tell him that you don't care that, you know, going to school on a set doesn't count, you know, in education. Um, you know, that kind of thing. So the momentum was there, and I just stepped up to the plate. And it was a life changer. It's interesting. I went to New York numerous times on side business in the contract negotiations, some very difficult people. And um, the commercial contract, they, they put education in it for the first time. And so we couldn't have done with one single player that, you know, was part of the team. We couldn't have done without them. It was just a convergence at the right time of everything. And um, I was sort of, maybe it was our poster child for the Cuban law. She's the one, that was the last law we tackled, and she would come to town on her own dime, and uh, she lived in Northern California and would attend these monthly meetings. And she's the one that, that the committee sent to Sacramento you know, to plead the case. And uh, so it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And um, then the nostalgia started. 
Okay. <laughs> there was, you know, that was a way, number one, there was money, you know, in that racket, you know, and we had a we had a um, commodity. Plus, it was fun. It was great to meet fans that remember this show. It was like, oh, I'm not the only one that remembers this. Jay and I were floored. When we first got into doing autographs, there were there were imposters out there. Someone was uh, with cast members of Rent Ten Ten pretending to be um, Lee Aker and signing autographs at Ray Porch's Hollywood show. And Lee Aker got wind of it and walked walked into the convention with Paul Peterson and some other people and confronted the cast members and told told Ray Porch that's an imposter. So Lee started doing his own signings, and there was a, an imposter. There were several imposters out there pretending to be Jay. So Jay first said, I want to do this because I want to shut them out. I want people to see my face, you know. And um, so then we started for 20-plus years working in the nostalgia circuit. had a blast, and the camaraderie could not be beat because we were truly each other's peers, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, you know, and I, I chaired the committee for six years and worked very hard with it. And then I had to kind of pull back because my personal life, you know, was involving me too much. Plus, I, I was done. I served, you know what I mean? It was like being at war for those six years, you know, having, having the top executives go from, well, you know, that's show business. If you don't like it, don't put your kids in it. To Mimi Gibson snarling in his face, but it's not right. <laughs> you know, we had, that's where we started. And we had to convince them that the Cuban law, that they were representing minors that didn't own the money they were earning. And I mean, it was an odyssey, a total odyssey. And it was just too fascinating to stop. So um, that that pretty much sums all that up. And in the meanwhile, I had a chiropractic practice looking along, <laughs> you know. So um, I wouldn't change what I did because I hooked up with people I had shared so much and found out that these are really my two peers. These are my peers. Only someone who has been there and done that as a child, you know, in the industry can even begin to get it. So. Um, you know, that's, and, and Mary and McDonough and I were very gratified that even after we left the committee, Paul and Darby Hinton and Johnny Whitaker kept going with the transition thing. And that got back burned because of the laws we were changing. But Mary and I had taken some very important meetings. And we got New York to start doing a um, young performers orientation as we initiated also. And there's now um, something called Looking Ahead that the Actors Fund has kept going, where it, it um, provides social setting for child actors. It, it provides that support, that place, because we were growing up and, oh, that person's competing with you. You know what I mean? Or like, you know, don't, don't badmouth the industry when truth are just facts that need to be shared with apparent, you know, realities. So, um, I don't know, I probably put you to sleep with all this, but that's the story. That's how it came full circle to me coming back and, and doing, you know, what I'm doing. So at this point in my life, I'm, the nostalgia has really slowed down for me. Jay and I hit it hard. 
and I haven't had a convention in a while, and it's no fun without Jay, you know. Um, and I'm sort of um, in the process of winding down my chiropractic practice after 40 years. And I'm going back and forth to Las Vegas because COVID interrupted a lot of that, doing the, um, the, the acting. It's like a workshop. It's like, you know, it's fun. We're giving basic facts about a patient. And then we go in there and we, we act it. And the students have to deal with this. And uh, so it's sort of a, it's like bringing both of my worlds together. I don't know how much longer I will be going back and forth, but that's that's what I'm up to right now. I was gonna say, you do that with your good friend Beverly Washburn, you know, when, mm-hmm. and I'm sure. Oh, yeah. And Beverly, as a matter of fact, got me into doing radio um, reenactments, which is a hoot, and it's a very different type of acting, which I hadn't been exposed to. So for the last five years, we've done that together, and we're going to do one in, in Seattle again. And um, in October, and um, we became friends at that point because she was older than me. She's closer to Cynthia Pepper's range, so we weren't going out for the same roles, and not you know we weren't in that clique of kids certain age. And we got to know each other through the circuit, the autograph circuit, and through my consideration. And then she suggested me for a radio reenactment. And then she suggests that I come see Henderson in Nevada because it's so cool and show me the job she was doing. So she's um, she really is an influence in my life and just the sweetest. She is so much fun to be around. You know, it's just unbelievable. So um, I'll be seeing her in a few days. And I'll be seeing her in September. But I mean, you're you know, you two have been friends for so long, and I'm just only last few years have I really gotten to know um, Beverly. And it's just for those, those that haven't had a chance to meet her, go to the shows, meet her. It's just, she just loves talking to people and is, is so caring, especially if you love dogs and cats, you know, bring, bring pic, make sure you have pictures on your phone because she likes to see it. <laughs> that, that's how, that's how her and I struck our friendship up with showing each other dog pictures. <laughs> She, yeah, she she is an animal lover, that's for sure. And she will adopt the old ones that no one else will, you know, to to make sure they have a, a good home. And, and she names them human names. Like she's got Harriet the cat, and she's, <laughs> she's got um, Betty, the little white chihuahua, and she's got, um, what is his name? Harry, I'm forgetting his name. He's got an underbite that's hysterical. Oh, I know. I'm trying to remember too. I, I, I was when she has Betty White, and I was I always get like it's Betty White, you know, because it's the white dog. And... Uh-huh. <laughs> but yeah, uh-huh. she always loves she always loves showing you pictures of the other dog because she says people were just like, but it looks so goofy. It's so funny, you know. And, and that was one of the reasons he wasn't. Larry, Larry, Larry is his name. Yeah, yeah. You can't look at Larry without cracking up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you want to look under anybody? Stop that! Pull that jaw back on <laughs> But yeah, she's a delight, and she's got a killer sense of humor too. Sounds being sweet, so she's a, a real gift in, in my life, and uh, appreciate her friendship so much. Now, one thing before I wanted to go back to Dennis Domenico, we talked about it briefly, and I just want to ask you about a, 
if just some of your other memories of some of the other people that were on the show? You know, if you if you do you have time uh, for that? I do. I'd love to talk about Gloria Henry because you know, mom. Um, she was a delight to work with when we were younger, and you know, when I was a kid, and just so sweet. And Gloria is someone I got to develop a friendship with on the nostalgia circuit. And I got to know her. I knew her as a child when I was a child and now as an adult, I got to know her as a gal pal. Oh my God, was she funny. Talk about a body sense of humor. We would enjoy traveling together and and eating together and doing nostalgia things together. And then, um, We'd, I don't know, I'm just so grateful that I had an adult friendship with her, and we used to trade books. She was a Carrie Fisher fan, just like I was. And um, then, of course, unfortunately, the last couple of years with COVID, her health was declining, and, you know, we couldn't visit each other, so we'd have sporadic phone conversations. But, man, what a gal. I consider her to be a girlfriend, you know, and she she made it until the day after her, I think it was her 97th birthday, and then she passed away. Yeah, so and um, so she lived a, a very yeah. long life. Yeah, yeah. And um, just had this wonderful class and sophistication about her. But, you know, as always, I bond with wit, you know, and that, that was it. So I'm very grateful we got to be friends in a whole other lifetime. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And there was Ron Howard, who would not even remember um, me, probably, but we were big pals uh, when he, whenever he was on the set and his dad rants, you know, we'd eat lunch. Sometimes at the Copper Skillet, which is, it, it's no longer there, but it was at Sunset and Gower where we eat. You, you'd see Paul and Shelley Fabray in there, and then you'd see um, Ronnie and I at a booth, and it was just, uh, it, was, it was funny. It was like a, a commissary. And, um, and one thrill, I don't, I don't know what else you want to ask me, but I liked our directors, and one of the directors particularly liked me, Charlie Barton. And he directed me in some physical comedy. And he said to my mother, you know, if I had it my way, she'd be in every single segment. He directed me in a scene where Wilson was handcuffed to Dennis and it was a school play. So he had to go on stage and I had to get a cowboy vest on Wilson by going through Jay, having Jay step in one of the arms and pulling it around Jay's body and then getting into Wilson all the way around to the other side. And we did it in one take. And Charlie said, oh, God, I love her. She's just great. Decades later, I, I, I was a, a Bella Lugosi fan, particularly when they did Ed Wood, right? You know, okay. I, I'm watching, um, I think it was Laurel and Hardy meet Frankenstein or Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yes. Okay. And Bella Lugosi was in that. And I watched the credits, and Charlie Barton had directed that. I said, I was in the presence of someone who worked with these guys who directed that movie. I had no idea who I was working with, you know? And um, 
I don't think I would have been intimidated because Hitchcock didn't intimidate me, you know. But decades later, I realized, how's my director? Oh, God, the guy that directed Bell was the first Carlock and those guys in that comedy, you know. <laughs> and he gave me that compliment. So um, that, and Irene Tedrow, who played Mrs. Elkins, was also another lovely friend of mine. She um, later, you know, offset. Decades later, she came to me as a chiropractor, and her daughter, Enid, who's an actress, also came to me for years. She was a regular on MASH. So I got to know Irene Tedrow as an, an adult form as well, you know, which was lovely. So. That, that's the great thing about sometimes when things work in certain circles, whether it's for your job, when you know, chiropractor, or for the nostalgia circuit where you're getting to also meet people that were your peers back then, but you didn't really maybe get a chance to hang with because, you know, you're doing your show, they were doing their shows and different networks mm -hmm. or whatnot. Um, and then, of course, I'm sure some of the people in the nostalgia circuit when you were starting off were people that you were looking up to from TV and movies and you got to meet them. Yes. What was this? So that had to be wild. When I met Will Hutchins, who played Sugarfoot, the cowboy, on, it was a series called Sugarfoot. Blonde cowboy. Okay, this is before even Dennis and Dennis was on. And I said, Sugarfoot, oh my God, I need my parents Sugarfoot. He goes, Baby, he goes, you know how many birds and dogs or cats were in Sugarfoot? But yeah, it was, a, it was great for me to meet these people. And when I met Michael Callan, who I always had a crush on too, yeah, I loved his work in, in films and he was in Cat Blue and, and uh, even younger. He did um, Mysterious Island. I don't know if you remember that. It's prisoners who escape in a hot air balloon and they wind up on this island with uh, big crabs and lobsters and things like that. It was one of my favorites. So, yeah, it was a big thrill for me. And it worked both ways. I was at a... Um, um, a party, a celebrity party in Danbury, Connecticut. We were brought in for a restaurant opening. And Garrett Morris was there from Saturday Night Live. He did the Tina Turner, you know, way back in the day. Yep. And, and I introduced myself and told him, who I said, you are just a wicked Tina Turner. And I said, I'm from way, way back. I did, I was Margaret and Dennis and this. And this. Frida, Frida, who's why he goes, this is Margaret. And the same thing happened when I met George Takai, who he was at that party. And I said, I can't believe I'm standing here with Sue. And he goes, I can't believe I'm standing here with Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So it worked both ways, you know, several times in a really surprising, fun way. You know? Yeah, because that's what I've talked to some people like, like Wesley Yor and things like that. And they'll say they have so much fun meeting people that they wanted to meet. And then, but they find the biggest fun is or the most enjoyment they get out of doing conventions is the people that came up to watch the show. And then they hear their stories and how the show related to them in ways that you would never have thought of at the time. Cause you know, especially because you were children or, or very young and, and how it impacted different people's lives. Did, did anybody ever come up to you during any of the shows and, Talk about something like how, you know, did, did that ever come up? Well, oh, yeah. Well, they would, you know, one person told me that Dennis and Minnesota got him through um, 
his parents divorce, you know, that he would just escape into watching that series. And, um, you know, they'll say, oh, you know, I, you know, we did come on, you know, oh, I just hated you. You were so good at what you did. I hated you. And it was fun to see the, the total recognition. And very recently, uh, well, not very, nothing's very recent because of COVID. That really did a number on me to have everything stop. Anyway, I was at an event, a fundraiser for St. Jude. Some of the guys from Chicago were, um, we're back, you know, we're playing the event. Robbie Krieger, the doors. Oh, God, it was so much fun to hear him play in person. And anyway, so I was I was introduced to uh, who was it? Jason Seth, I guess it was, who was you know, singing from Chicago at, at that time. And my girlfriend, Paula, beautiful girl. She was an actress, too. And she said, um, Jason, this is this is Jeannie Russell. And he goes, uh-huh. And she was, he, she was Margaret in Bozeman Medicine. He goes, Margaret. She goes, I have just watched Jason go back to being six years old, you know? How fun. So, um, but you know what, what, what gets me is the, the young, this new crop of parents that are saying to me, you know, I feel safe sitting my child down to watch your show. You know, they're raising their own kids to watch it because it's safe and it's wholesome. And it's good writing. It started with the writers. The writers back in the day were really, really good. Yeah, so I, I don't know if that answered your question or not. But you know. I think it does. And, and like you were saying, shows like yours, My Three Sons, um, Leave it to Beaver, and, and plenty of others. They're written so well, and that's why they have such a legacy where people can still watch mm-hmm. it on various channels. Um, they rotate through off and on, but, I mean, they always seem to be running somewhere in the country, you know, where people can just watch it and, and not have to worry about any um, controversy that's going to come up with their young children watching and that kind of stuff. When you have a five-year-old or six-year-old, you can say, oh, well, we can watch this, and they're reminiscing from when they grew up watching it in reruns or first person, you know, and, uh, and that kind of stuff. I think, I think there's something about those shows having those legs that just tells you that they have the great legacy. Right. And, you know, they were, um, they could be funny. They could be wicked funny, but they weren't mean spirited, you know, and that, that's a big difference, you know, um, I think. Oh, I agree. I agree with you. And, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to um, share these reminiscences with me. Cause I think learning more about a minor consideration, I know you said, Oh, I hope I didn't bore, but I think a lot of people don't understand that. And yes, we have some of that from Mimi Gibson's side, but I mean, now we get your, your side goes into a little more detail about, about mm-hmm. the, uh, the ins and outs of it. And, because a lot of people just don't think about that. They just think, oh, they were a child actor. They're, they're loaded with money and not realizing that the parents could have spent everything. They happened to a lot of child actors, un- unlike your mother who saved the money for you and was able, and you were able to put it to very good use, you know, and, and, and that kind of stuff. Not everybody has that option. And uh, except for what. No, a lot of kids were supporting their families and then some, you know, and the law. The thing that, that I had to get the executives to understand was that in California, up until 2000, 
parents owned the goods and services of their minor children, which meant they weren't doing anything wrong. They owned that money. They owned it, you know. But the IRS didn't see it that way. The IRS said, no, the child earned the money, has a social security number, and is therefore responsible for any taxes. So another twist on this was very often, if a child had anything at all, the first person they met on their 18th birthday was the IRS to collect it because the parents had neglected to pay the, the taxes. Or if the taxes weren't paid and the child didn't have the money, the tax burden was on the child's head for the rest of their life until it was paid off, not the parent. And then that was that equation made no sense. Yeah. So uh, no one could, the guilds could believe this is what they'd been supporting and going on right under their nose. And legal verified it. And I went, yeah, you know. So that was very interesting. And that's a whole, whole other story in itself. And then also, you know, my life was greatly impacted by my brother, who was a very prolific child actor at the time as well. So there were two of us going. My brother was making Bye Bye Birdie on one set while I was making Dennis and Dennis on another and uh, at the same studio. And he had a, a flashier career. He worked with big stars, major, major stars. But people remember my work because Dennis the Menace has been bombarding the airwaves <laughs> of the universe for all this time, you know, and some of the films. You know, Brian made her something from memory, even though there were big stars involved. Yeah, so. it's, it's like your, your, show, was, your show's like Gilligan's Island, where people just remember all those characters and all those actors forever, and that's just the way it's going to be. Yeah. 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 Well, it was a pleasure talking to you, and um, I hope you get something out of all this mess. <laughs> so. well, it's going to be great, and um, we'll say our proper goodbyes in just a second. I just want to thank you again, though, for doing the show. And um, I really appreciate it. It was nice to be asked. I appreciate that. I want to thank Janie Russell again for joining me for the interview. I hope you all enjoyed it. And then if you want to leave us feedback, please email us at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com or leave us a message on our Facebook page. Otherwise, we're going to end the episode listening to the Birds movie where the children are singing, which he talked about during the interview. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you enjoy your next episode coming up. And everybody has a good day. Thank you. Bye.
my children now please put your song books away then stand up alongside your guests we'll go out to recess as soon as everybody gets ready we are not going into the playground until everybody is quieted down <laughs> 